Hey everyone, welcome back to the Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Kyle Alander from Christian Idealism. Um, no more red background, but we do have a red chair. Uh, we're talking about how, like, how Theism makes predictions today. So Kyle, what's up, man? How are you? Uh, pretty good. Glad to be here. Awesome. So what we're going to talk about today is like um, theism and like how it's going to make predictions, which I mean, if, if true, like it's a big win for the theism side, because a lot of people will be like, especially on like, the atheist side, will say, you know, theism doesn't make predictions. It is no explanatory power. Da, da, da. Um, so, yeah, Kyle, do you want to talk a little bit? Just like introduce yourself in case people don't know who you are and like what's going on today. Yeah. So my name's uh, Kyle Allender. As you all know, I've been on this channel multiple times. Christian Idealism, I run a YouTube channel. Um, my main focus, at least right now, is actually the philosophy of religion. So I'm kind of away from philosophy of mind. Um, I'm working on a huge project, which is my own case for theism. And a lot of the stuff we're going to discuss today is going to be a part of that project. So um, there's a lot of new stuff I have to present here I'm going to talk about, and hopefully people will appreciate it on both sides. Mm. Well, <clears throat> I, I'd encourage people to subscribe to your channel, Kyle, because I think it's great because you're kind of in that like Swinburneian-ish kind of style of things. Um, so it's yeah. a good take um, <clears throat> when you combine that and idealism and all that fun stuff. Yep. So let's just start with this. Um, we're going to talk about like how theism makes predictions and like where's the best place to start this, Kyle, when we're kind of trying to frame this. Right. So when we're starting... So- a few works I would recommend to get the basic idea is actually Swinburne himself. He makes this point. So one of the things is uh, Swinburne in his book, The Existence of God, it's, I believe, chapter six, where he goes into um, the explanatory power of theism. And what people don't really understand what he's doing there. So I see a lot of atheists, you know, try to argue against what he has to say in there. But what he's really doing when you get down to it is basically this idea of axiology and basically it comes down to this idea that God's motivations to do things is based on his goodness, not his power. Cause I see this get confused a lot, right? So when we're saying that God does an action, what we're saying is that it has to be a good action, right? And if it's a good action, then it's not the case that God can just do whatever he wants or that we can't like make any kind of predictions. I will, I'll, I'll get more to predictions in a moment. Cause there is another way you could look at this, but at least when it comes to theism, at least thinking about what, what we can expect God to do. Right. People will say, oh, we can't know anything about what God would do. Right. And I would disagree with that. I think um, there are things we, we, there, we, there are, let's say, principles we can we can employ to sort of give us some kind of expectation or some kind of epistemic what i would say an epistemic probability to what god would do right and this is when i'm when i'm saying when i'm talking about god here i'm referring more generally to just bare theism so i'm not talking christian theism or any other type of theism i'm just talking just from the concept of god it's just entailed that god would do good things. And if that's the case, which I think it is, I think that's just entailed from definition, um, then that's kind of how, that's how theism makes his predictions. Now, that's the, that's the first aspect, of course, and people, you know, that's not the only, that's, that's not where the theist has to stop. Where the theist has to go to then is what's called an axiology or some kind of 
value system or let's say a decision theoretic framework by which God actually makes his decisions by, right? If that makes sense. Um, and that's going to be based on um, some kind of axiological framework, right? So one of the um, caveats of this is that people can disagree about the axiological framework, of course, but it's just false to say that theism doesn't make predictions um, just because of, you know, just because like God, you know, they talk about God, be, if God is omnipotent, then there's an infinite number of ways he could have done something. Um, but because he only chose this particular uh, action, then therefore we can't really say if there's a probability, right? Um, and that's just completely wrong um, because of this idea of axiology and, you know, how God actually makes his decisions. So really, I guess the basic point here is if you want to understand how theism makes predictions, you have to really get down to God's goodness and his love, not his power, if that makes sense. So yeah, God might have the ability to do something. That doesn't mean like, we're not talking about his abilities. We're talking about his motivations and his motivations are going to be based on just his goodness. So that's the broad uh, thing of it. So sense. long story short, when we're going to talk about like why theism like can make predictions, we're not looking at like the omnipotence of God where it's like, Oh God can do anything. It's so, like, we have no clue like what's going to happen here. Or, like what God would do, but rather like you talked about and like what Swinburne does is say, hey, we're going to look at God's perfection. And from God's perfection, we're going to be able to make these predictions. And that's kind of how theism is going to make predictions and explain things in the world. Yeah. And another thing I want to mention here before we continue is actually a quote from Trent Dowdery on this. Um, so I'm just going to give you guys the full quote so you can understand where he's coming from. So he says, theism's sole axiom is that there exists a person, a certain kind of person, a rational agent, a being with a mind and will, whose mind comprehends all truths and whose will is perfectly effective and unhindered by any outside force. Here are some further assumptions to which it will help with without defense. First, I assume that facts about what constitute right action and right reasoning are necessary truths. Second, I assume that when an object is conceived of as good, it automatically gives the agent who grafted such a reason to pursue it. Thus, states of affairs are, at their most general level, expected to the extent that they are good states of affairs, that they realize some kind of value, and the higher the value, the higher the expectation. Of course, there will be larger, infinitely many of ways of realizing the highest goods. There will likely be a very high goods and co exemplification of which in a world is not possible so no particular way of realizing them will have any antecedently high mathematical probability but we are not trying to predict in advance which goods will be realized in which ways we are retrodicting asking ourselves what makes sense of what we take to be the case when doing this what makes it not so much which tokens occur but rather which types are to tokened Given that God is a rational agent, we expect the best kinds of values to be tokened. And of course, for this means to serve ends well, we want the goods to be brought about in the most fitting way. So I know there's a lot there, but to summarize the quote there, what he's basically saying is, number one, we're assuming that these axiological truths that God is motivated by are necessary truths. And number two, 
that when we see an object as good, then it automatically gives God some kind of reason to pursue it, right? And then, of course, the third point that he made in there is just the general idea that of what's called retrodiction. And this idea of retrodiction is pretty much what we do in science all the time. So we don't have to predict in advance what will occur, but rather we look back on the history of our world and we say, okay, well, this is expected for my theory. Even if my theory was formed after the fact, right? We could still like have this retrodictive, what's called retroductive inference. Um, and we do that in science all the time. This idea, in fact, this idea of predictivism, this idea that um, theories that only predict things ahead of time are, you know, more epistemically probable is actually a view in the, the philosophy of science called predictivism. And Swerprin himself has critiqued this view. Um, I'm not going to get into cr criticism of that view here, but I just want people to realize, like, you know, when we're talking about God, when we're talking about theism making predictions, what we're really saying is theism retrodicting, if that makes sense. And of course, as I mentioned before, science, scientific uh, views, theories, or whatever do this all the time, so it's not an issue, right? Um, so I hope that sort of um, helps people understand what we mean when we say that theism makes predictions. What we're really saying is that theism is retrodicting. Um, so yeah. So if I understand you right, Kyle, because I want to like really help people who are listening kind of understand this, because the big claim we're making today is like theism makes predictions, and that's gonna like provide yeah. like strong evidence for God. The reason that theism makes predictions is, in a broad stroke, um, we're thinking about God and God being like a perfect being. And we're thinking about like, well, if there is a perfect being, like what, what are the consequences that there would be as a result of there being a perfect being in the world? Um, you can look at things like design or beauty or like, right. you know, like moral agents. And these are things that uh, if there is a perfect being, um, it'd be more likely if there is a perfect being than not. And that's how we're going to get like this, like, evidence for theism or like it makes predictions that there would be these things yeah so i mean atheists do this all the time with the argument from evil right so they say there's evil in the world we would expect this on theism right given that god is all good he would prevent suffering or whatever come up they you know put in some principle or moral constraint on god and say well god violated this moral constraint therefore god can't be all good well you can do that as an argument right but the moment you do that, you're automatically going to assume some kind of value system to, like, you know, judge God's actions by. So the axiology is sort of like the data itself, if that makes sense. And then, you know, from there, then you could sort of. So I guess the idea is with theism, you kind of have to have these auxiliary, I would say, um, assumptions. And these auxiliary assumptions are going to be axiological principles in the background to sort of guide what to sort of guide god's actions right um and i mean there's there's even been a few atheist philosophers that have uh, proposed this so one of them is gregory dawes he puts some i forgot exactly what it's called but he could he puts like um a rationality principle on god right so it's not like only theists are the ones that are trying to do this you also have atheists that also want to do this now of course gregory dawes argues against theism and he says that you know god violates that principle but you know it is what it is the, the point here is like there are ways you can show that theism um can be tested in that sort of way even if it's not like some empirical test or some you know experiment or whatever that makes sense
Mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'd love to start to like dive a little deeper now, because um, I feel like the people listening, like you kind of have like the big idea of like here is how theism makes predictions, and now we want to think about like what exactly is that going to mean. So one of the things that you talked about with me is like that, like it's going to depend, like first, like for looking at like value systems. Um, it's like, what is a value system and then like, what role is that going to play in like theism making predictions? Right. So a value system is basically just an axiology or let's say a value theory or whatever you want to call it. Right. So, um, and this is going to be part of the background knowledge that both sides have to assume. So both sides have to assume this value system and force you know, especially when it comes to arguments from evil, they also have to assume the same value system, right? So if you're going to make any kind of judgments upon what God can't and can't do on a, on a particular world, that is going to assume some kind of value system. Now, of course, there are different ways you can look at it. So there are some theists that out there that don't think that God has any obligations, right? I don't agree with that. Um, so I would say that God does have moral or aesthetic obligations to his creatures if he makes them. And I have this general principle I'll get into later on this. But um, but yeah, that's basically what a value system is. It's basically a set of principles or a set of necessary truths that God is motivated by to create. Right? It doesn't have to be specific because, again, if we're talking about types of worlds rather than token worlds, um, then it's going to be there, there's going to be a little bit more freedom at least with respect to what God can do when it comes to um, what he's motivated by. Now, of course, I know some people are going to say, oh, well, Kyle, you're psychoanalyzing God, right? Um, You're trying to get into the mind of God. We can't understand the mind of God. In some sense, I agree. I don't think we can understand the mind of God fully. Even, Even when we're in heaven, I don't think we can understand the mind of God fully, right? That's not what I'm claiming. What I'm claiming is that we can have some kind of epistemic we can put some kind of epistemic probability to what God would do or God's actions would do, even if we don't know the exact details, if that makes sense. Um, so I just want to, you know, put that out there. But um, if you want, I can get to the more deep, the more detailed uh, value system, that, at least that I work with, if you want to get into it, Zach. Well, yeah, I think, I think that's a great start. Um, and I'd love to get into your value system here in a sec. But like what you're trying to say is like <clears throat> when we're starting off with like making these like how these and makes predictions, we talk big picture about it's going to come from God's goodness. And this value system is going to help us understand like what does it mean for God to be good? And that's going to help us. Get right. So it's going to it's going to really come down to God's motivation. So what is it within God's, let's say, decision framework that why would he choose one option over another? And it's going to again, it's going to be based in terms of goodness. And another thing is. When God is looking at this, he's not looking at it in terms of tokens. I mean, I guess he could, but I mean, in that case, then you would have an infinite number, right? Or rather, he's looking at it in terms of types. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so so his motivations come from his goodness. Right, right. So that's sort of um, what we're looking at here. Um, now, at least in regards to the principles involved, so there are a few principles that I do want to lay out for people so the first one is what's called the diffusion principle and the diffusion principle is kind of independent of theism but again we're talking if we're talking about necessary axiological truths then this is kind of what you know on the condition that theism is true this is kind of what would be the case so the diffusion principle is basically that goodness is diffusive of itself that 
Goodness requires something other than itself as a manifestation of itself. Hence, the good being, or let's say God, will be inev will inevitably bring about other good things. So this is a general principle that um, God has to create in the sense of it's just the epicenter probability that God creates is one. It doesn't mean it's necessary, so it's not a metaphysical necessity, but rather it just means that God has to ground other good things to exist. Now, the second principle, uh, you have any questions on that principle? So God, so God has to, I, I think that, I think people get hung up with like, you're saying it's not epistemically necessary, but like where it is. It's not metaphysically up, necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the epicenter probability is um, one in this case. So how can there be an epistemic like probability of one? Like meaning like it's going to happen no matter what it's going to happen and it not be like metaphysically necessary. So it has to be, well, it has to do with this idea of um, whether God himself is metaphysically necessary. And I leave that option open, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing is like with this principle, it just says that God has to ground good things. It doesn't say anything about what specifically that would be. So in that sense, then um, any world that God creates is not necessary. It's just that it's necessary that God creates some world, even if, even if the, you know, even if there's some, cause I do think there is a problem, like, for example, I don't think that the existence of our world is epicenter probability one um, because there, cause we're, a, we're a token among a type. So that's the important part is that our world, because our world is a token of a type, it's the type that would be um, epistemically, you know, the epicenter probability of one, but we observe ourselves in a token. And so because of that, we are, we ourselves are not going to be an episode of probability one on theism, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Do you, you understand where I'm going here? Yeah. So it's like the type of world God creates is up in the air to some sense. Like he didn't have to create our world. He could have created a different world, but like that God's going to do something like that's something that was going to happen. That he's yeah. So, do. Basically, the token of our world, so our specific world, is up in the air in the sense that um, there is a non-one probability that God would create us, which basically means that there's um, it's not 100% probable that God would create us. But mm -hmm. when we're talking about a type, so a world that God creates, because again, if we're viewing types as God creates to God doesn't create, the type of God creating is always going to be one, but the actual token. So like what specifically is God going to create? That's going to be not, that's not going to be one. That's going to be some kind of, there's going to be some kind of probability to it. That's below hundred percent, if that makes sense. So okay. that's why, yeah. it, that's why it avoids the necessitarianism because we're not saying that our world specifically is necessary. Just that there's just that within the, within the epistemically possible spaces of worlds that God can create, you know, we find ourselves in one of them, even if it's, even if it's necessary. So think of it like this. Okay. Let's say you have, um, let's say you're playing darts and the dart board is infinitely big. Okay. Now the probability that you're going to land on one specific point of that is actually extremely low. Right. But the probability that you will hit the dartboard is 100%. It's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Even if that, even if, you know, you throw the dart and 
the moment it hits it, um, even if it's like, you know, very, very, very small, that you're going to hit one specific part of it, you're still going to hit a part of it, even if the probability is 100% that you will hit the dartboard, right? If we're talking about an mm -hmm. infinite dartboard. So that's just the, that's a thought experiment that I like to always sort of use because it also gets around the objection like, oh, well, if God is omnipotent, then like, you know, the probability that God would create our world is basically zero because you have this infinite number of ways that God could have done it otherwise. Well, that that thought experiment basically, you know, um, pretty much undermines or com com completely, uh, yeah, undermines uh, that kind of argument. Um, so, yeah, I just, do you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so it's kind of like you're thinking like, like, God's going to do something like he's going to create yeah. something. What is what he's going to do is we don't know. Um, there's a lot of options here, but like God is going to do something. Right. Yeah. That's basically um, at least that's entailed from the diffusion principle. Now there are some other principles that I think narrow down what that's going to, you know, what's what type yeah. of world, but yeah, that's so basically the, what the diffusion principle does that shows that there's a hundred percent probability that God will create, but that doesn't mean that God will create our specific world. Right, with our specific mm -hmm. properties and all that stuff. So, um, so yeah. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful. So I think we've kind of like looked at value systems as like, like what they are. Um, like yeah. they're set of like these necessary like moral truths. Do you want to dive into a little bit of like your value system and how that's going to help like play into what's going on? Yeah. So I already mentioned the the diffusion principle. Another principle would be what's called the principle of plenitude. So basically this principle just says, let me see if I can find my notes on this. Okay. Um, okay. So that if the, hold on da, 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 a sec. Okay. Plenty principle. So we can say that God brought about things into existence in order to communicate his goodness to creatures and to representative or to represent his goodness through them. So God's goodness or God's nature is reflected in creation. However, God's goodness cannot be adequately represented in any one creature or any one thing in creation, but rather God would create a many diverse, many diverse creatures and many diverse good things. That way, whatever was lacking in one's representation of the divine goodness in one creature, or one thing may be supplemented by another for the goodness that exists in a simple uniform way that, you know, for, so within God, you have just simple, like simple and pure goodness. Whereas in creation, you have a multiplicity of goodness. And the multiplicity of goodness sort of like is a reflection of God's own nature. So that's basically what the principle of plenitude is saying. That um, you're not going to find... So if God creates a world... So this is kind of, you know, think of the diffusion principle and then let's narrow it down a little bit. So if God creates a world, there's an epistemic probability of one that he will create. But there's also an epistemically probable 1% that whatever God creates um, will sort of um, that there's going to be a plenitude of things. Now mm -hmm. that leaves open upon what that will look like. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's going to leave open on what is a world going to look like if we say that God is going to create a plenitude of things. Um, but there's still at least antecedently that the antecedent probability that God would create um a multiplicity of things is one so it is sort of narrowing down the principle so like for example we can rule out worlds where god only creates one kind of thing or one 
kind of uh, goodness, right? So, for example, um, saying that God would create a world in which there's only one particle, I think we can rule that out just by just by this principle. So, just by the fact that um, if you did, if God did create a world with only one particle in it, well, that's not going to really reflect fully what God's nature is. Whereas in our kind of world, it's a little bit different. So, in our world, we actually have moral agents. We have you know, a universe, a beautiful universe. We also, well, I, I, I'll get more into the different categories of value in a moment, but, um, but I hope you understand what I'm saying here that when we're talking about the principle of plenitude, we're talking just the idea that there is going to be different categories of value that God will actualize. And like each one is going to sort of represent a different aspect of God's nature. Mm -hmm. um, now I do have, so I guess the three, categories of value in this case would be um a aesthetic goodness a lethic goodness and then moral goodness so these are the three categories so like for example fine-tuning might fit within the aesthetic and then moral agents like us is going to fit of course into the moral and then some kind of argument like from the applicability of mathematics or whatever i'm not saying that you you know theists have to accept that argument but that's just one example where like maybe some alethic argument for theism might go through or something, or maybe the nomic argument for theism, you know, the argument that the laws of nature are explained by theism better than naturalism might fit also within that category, or maybe it could fit in both categories of alethic and aesthetic. Right. Cause it's not really a moral um, thing. Right. Um, so yeah. It, do you, so that's the basic um, idea, at least behind the plenitude principle, that um, if God creates, that God would create a multiplicity of things rather than just one particular kind of goodness. Mm. So, yeah. So you're looking at that idea then, it's like God is going to create a world where it's just like me and Kyle. Like, like that, that, that's not enough. Like, he's looking at, yeah. like different kinds of goodness like he like if he's gonna create like he's in a universe that has like aesthetic goods and moral goods um it's gonna be full of all kinds of different like good things within the universe yeah so that kind of gets around a lot of objections of fine-tuning like for example the electrons and love objection mm -hmm. um where oh well only god only creates um you know electrons that sort of fire and whatever well that's not gonna actually that kind of world is not gonna give you something like a moral um that's not going to give you moral um, goodness, right? And it's also not going to mm -hmm. give you aesthetic or not. It, well, it, it would actually give you aesthetic goodness, but it's not going to give you something like a lethal goodness, right? So yeah, th there is this kind of weird scenario where like if you apply this value system to arguments against certain arguments for theism, like fine tuning, um, this would actually completely undermine those objections entirely because it goes by the wrong value system. Right. So um, so it definitely does help the theist in this case, because not only can you show that not only can you use a variety of different arguments for theism and show like, hey, there's a multiplicity of ways that theism can make predictions, but also it can sort of protect against um, potential objections to these arguments as well. Um, so, yeah. So that's my second principle. And I do have one more, um, but I don't do you have any questions about the plenitude principle i think that's good we've looked at the different kinds of goods um yeah okay so the last one is actually i, I i'm not saying this to get clicks i'm not saying this to 
um, get views or like, you know, but I literally, this, this expert's what I'm going to go over. I literally came up with it last night. <laughs> like literally I didn't come up with like when we first, um, scheduled to have this talk, um, I didn't even have this principle yet. So I literally came up with this last night. Um, so I'm still playing around with it, but I do think it works. So the final principle is what I call the ultimate goodness and the definition or the, well, I haven't formally. The end. Sorry, did I break up? You broke up there for a sec, um, but I think okay. you're good now, Kyle. So go ahead. Okay. So this is what the ultimate goodness principle says. For any E, E can be instantiated by God if at some time T, E bears the axiological status of being good on the whole. Okay. Um, and what that basically means is that any world that God creates or any creature that God creates, that at some time it obtain the axiological status of being good on the whole, which basically means that all of its imperfections and, you know, all of what it was meant to be is fully realized, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Now, informally, this is my informal definition, would say that anything God creates or grounds must be ultimately good on the whole. Now, we can just, that basically just means the same thing. So good, when we talk about ultimate goodness, we're just talking about good on the whole, right? Um, so I would say that this principle puts a constraint on God's action since we, you know, if we're talking about theism making predictions, we need a way to separate out states of affairs um, that are antecedently expected on theism from ones that are not antecedently expected on theism, right? And so these, so the principle of ultimate goodness um, would sort of antecedently, or it would it would put a constraint on the what's called the antecedent probability of theism. So basically any world that God creates must be at some point in that world must, that world must reach the actually logical status of being good in the whole. Right. Um, and I believe that this principle actually fully encapsulates um, what I've discussed before in this channel, which is like, you know, talking about the defeat condition and like evil eventually being defeated and all that stuff. So it really, it puts the antecedent probability of theism in that sort of line of reason. So basically it's just entailed, from theism that you would get some kind of like defeat condition as a, as another kind of moral constraint of God, at least when it comes, when we conditionalize evil. So there is a, I just want to be clear here that um, when we're talking about the ultimate goodness principle and the defeat principle, um, the defeat principle is just, it's conditionalized upon evil. Whereas the ultimate goodness principle is just the antecedent probably. So the antecedent um, principle that we're using to sort of constrain God's actions. Right. So I just want to make mm -hmm. that clear because some people will like object. Oh, well, don't you have to, you know, um, wouldn't you have to conditionalize upon evil? And it's like, well, no, not in this case. I mean, yeah, when it comes to the defeat principle, then yeah, you would have to conditionalize on evil, right? But when it comes to the antecedent probability, right, independently of evil, um, then we would use this, what's called this ultimate goodness principle. Um, and so when you have these three principles, so you have the diffusiveness principle, the principle of plenitude and the ultimate goodness principle, um, then that is those, those three principles are, are going to be in the antecedent probability range of what we can expect God to do. So 
of course, the, the diffusion principle just says that God has to create a world. It doesn't have to be a specific world. Number two is the principle of plenitude. And as I stated before, this basically means that there has to be a multiplicity of things that God creates. So there has to be aesthetic goods. There has to be alethic goods and moral goods. And then finally, the ultimate goodness principle, which basically is another constraint on God, which basically says that for any entity that God creates, that um, at some time, so it can be any time, it could be right after they're created or some time later down the line, that this entity or creature bears some kind of axiological status of being good in the whole. Right, so this can be this can be applied to a moral agent, but this can also be applied to the universe as a whole, right? So when we're saying mm -hmm. like, you know, for example, when we're saying that the universe is sort of growing and becoming better over time or evolving over time, well, that's I think that's expected on theism. That's expected that um, you would have this kind of um, that eventually the universe will be will gain the axiological status of being good in the whole, right? Um, at least aesthetically, right? And it, it might it might not be a moral good, but it's going to be aesthetic good. Because again, if we're also using the plenitude principle, then there has to be these different categories of value as well. Um, so that's basically um, my value system in a nutshell. Now, there are some other principle, well, I would say other principles that we can go over, but at least when it comes to constraining God's goodness, those are going to be the principles that I'm going to be working by. Um, and like, that's how theism, my type of theism would make its predictions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we're looking in it, the predictions are going to come when we're looking at a universe that is like good on its whole. And if we can see that, like that's going to be some like informatory evidence, like towards theism. Right. Yeah. And it also, okay. I think, yeah. And another, I guess one last thing in regards to that is like, um, I think this also has implications for arguments from evil because a lot of the times people will say, oh, well, the antecedent probability of theism on evil is low, right, because of this or because of some other principle that they say, oh, well, God must prevent harm or, you know, they have some kind of other, like I know Gregory Dawes says something like um, that God must prevent suffering or something like that. God would reduce suffering, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. what this principle does is it sort of um, shows, or it's an alternative principle. So it says that basically that for any world that God creates or any creature that God creates, that that creature must at some time reach the actually logical status of being good on the whole. And the thing with that is there's nothing in our world that really violates that principle because um, antecedently on theism, all it's saying is that at some time that um creatures would gain that actually logical status to begin on the whole it doesn't say that it has to be right now or in this life or you know whatever right if that makes sense mm -hmm. uh, so yeah okay yeah i think that's super helpful so thanks for that kyle so i'd love to look, start to look at like how is theism then going to start to depend on a value system? Like, so we have these value systems that we talked about, and you talked about a different couple of different principles. Like, how is theism going to like depend on that? Right. So the reason it's, I mean, it's very simple. So it just, you look at the hypothesis of theism. Theism says that God is all good. If they, if God is all good, then He must be guided by um, moral principles or some kind of 
there must be some kind of end by which God is acting by, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that case, then the axiology, your value system is going to dictate what God is motivated to do, right? And it's part, again, when it comes to the theism and naturalism debate, it has to be part of the background knowledge because naturalists, in order for them to make an internal critique of theism, so like some argument from evil or whatever, they have to use that same axiology. So they have to, they, they have to, so basically what you could say, and I would agree with this, is that um, the axiology determines what the antecedent probability of theism would be or what we can expect God to do, right, given his goodness. So it's just flowed from the nature of, of God that he would sort of do these kind of things, right, mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> um, let me see. I guess you, what you could say is um, this is going to, I think, I forgot which philosopher came up with this term, but um, you could say that God is the truth, the good, and the beautiful. And so because of that, then, uh, sorry, I don't know why they're pretty out. <laughs> oh, man, this is uh, not what it's I... It's pretty out right there. Yeah, I, I'm not doing this, so it's probably my grandparents' uh this stuff out i don't know why <laughs> but nice uh, little like halfway through the interview like pretty yeah like, uh, eruption I great or something. <laughs> um but i hope you understand where i'm coming from so basically that um is this the same freaking yeah uh <laughs> i don't know how much longer this is gonna go by <laughs> well i can yeah i mean one question. I have one question for you. Yeah. Um, it's something maybe to think about as you keep gathering things that are printing. Um, and I think people would be wondering. So we started off talking about like these like these value principles, um, and that, yes. like, they're gonna help make these and make predictions. But some people may wonder like, well, are these the things that like like is God like subservient to like to these value principles? Like, how do they relate directly to God? Um, because it seems like you're like these principles like God must do this, God must do this. Was then is there something like above God telling God what to do? Like that's obviously as a Christian, like you would not, you wouldn't really want to affirm that. Yeah. So the the idea of this. Okay, I gotta stop this. <laughs> Hold on, let me turn off. Okay, I'll just. I think it stopped now. Okay, so um, the question was, I think I believe the question that you asked was uh, <laughs> thinking about like God... how does God relate to these like moral principles you talked about? So it's just entailed. So it's just entailed from the fact that God is all. So again, it's part of the hypothesis that God is all good, right? So if God is all good on that condition, then it's just entailed that God would be motivated. And this is kind of what Swinburne also use it as where these axiological principles are necessary truths and god will be kind of moved by them right so to speak mm -hmm. um so it's not it's not like god is like oh well these principles constrain what i do therefore i can't do it it's more of this is just part of god's nature to you know be be kind of uh, guided by these principles right 
-hmm. um, now another thing is i also want to mention that these principles don't say that like god has to create a specific token world right yeah. so it's not like in that sake in that case then i don't think the objection really holds because god still has the freedom to create you know when, when he wants to fulfill these principles there's there's a lot of freedom in god to what he can do in terms of um the token world that he creates but when it comes to the type of world i think that's going to be um where you have to kind of like narrow down um what god is going to do right so um the probability that god would create a to a world is one even if like our specific world is not one the probability that he's going to create a world with a multiplicity of beings is also one again even if we ourselves find ourselves in a different kind so like there might be a world where you have like a different set of multiplicity of things or whatever but it's still going to be more probable right and this has to also go back to the retrodiction idea um, that i mentioned earlier and then of course the ultimate goodness principle would be just that for any world that god creates um that you would have um yeah that that creature would eventually reach the status of of getting the status of good in the whole right mm -hmm. so it's not something that it's not so there i think there there is still freedom in god and what he can do but because of God's goodness, that's going to automatically just constrain what he can do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think theist, like, I think if, if theism wants to have explanatory power, it kind of has to do that, right? There has to be some kind of um, constraints on God, if that makes sense. I mean, this, and in, of course, in this case, um, God's constraints are going to be this kind of axiological landscape, right? So, so yeah. Yeah, so it's not like these principles like are like telling God what to do, but rather these principles kind of come from the nature of God, and from that we're gonna be able to like make these predictions. Right. Yeah. Pretty much. So. So is there anything else you want to say, Kyle, about like how theism like depends on a value system, or do you want to kind of look into like the prediction aspect now? Yeah. So let's um, go into like the prediction aspect. Um, yeah. Before you see. do, I just want to paint the picture for people. Um, so in the beginning, we kind of like give a brief sketch and then we talked, like we did a lot of work talking about like value systems. Um, so thinking about like a set of like necessary, like moral truths. And you talked about like the value system you kind of like are putting forward here. We're like looking at things like God's going to create a diverse world with different kinds of goodness. Um, it's going to be ultimately good and whatnot. And because of that, with that value system, theism can make these predictions. Um, and theism depends on the value system because like God is good himself. And from that, we're going to be able to get like these predictions and whatnot. Am right. I it just, it kind of flows right. from the definition. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then if there is a value system and like theism is going to kind of flow from that, like how does theism make predictions then? Right. So when it comes to that specific question, there's actually, so I'm sure you have, you've had Tim Howard on before. I'm invoking theism. And he himself has actually come up with this great thesis um i didn't really he he's the one that uh came up with this so i give full credit to him and when it, it's basically what's called the axiological relevance thesis so this is what it mm -hmm. says for any observation theism predicts the observation if a relation of axiological relevance connects propositions about theism to propositions about the observation um so what this means is that you can have propositions that or you know you can have 
propositions about the observation that could be aesthetic observations, they could be alethic observations, or they could be moral observations, right? But as long as there's some relate, or as long as there's some axiological relevance between the observation, um, yeah. So basically, as long as there's an axiological relevance between the observation and to what theism says about, you know, it's about what theism's value system is, then that's automatically going to favor theism um, over naturalism, right? Because naturalism mm -hmm. is axiologically indifferent, right? There is no axiological relevance there, right? So because of that, well, you know, I'm sure you've heard of, uh, you know, arguments like, oh, well, naturalism can parody theistic explanation. For example, you have... Um, the stalking horse objection against fine tuning where um, basically, Oh, well, if, if God is God has motivation to do X in this case, fine tuning, then the naturalist can just say, Oh, well, there's a natural disposition towards X or fine tuning. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, there's a kind of like this parody um, explanation that you could present there. And the actual logical relevance, these completely shows that to not be true because God is going to be motivated by, um, axiological relevance so the connection between fine-tuning so fine-tuning is an aesthetic good um and that's going to fit within theism's value system so it's just so it's just it flows from the nature of faith because because again if god is all good he's going to do good things and if good things are what you know whatever the value system is then it's just going to be sort of that's just going to sort of flow from theism. Whereas on naturalism, natural dispositions are fundamentally indifferent, right? So they're not going to be connected. So indifference doesn't actually you can't make a connection between indifference and some kind of natural disposition. There, it just doesn't exist there, right? And also the other thing is, you know, the term natural is also actually logical. Um, axiologically indifferent, right? So, because it's axiologically indifferent, then something like Graham Oppie's, you know, parody method of like looking at theistic evidence is, is not going to work either on this kind of way of looking at things. Um, so, it completely bypasses all those issues. Um, because if God is motivate, motivated by goodness, then the evidence for theism is going to be in terms of axiological relevance. But naturalism cannot parody that because naturalism is not guided by axiological relevance. Right. So that's where theism gets the advantage from in terms of the, you know, how, how does theism actually predict these sort of things? So, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Okay. So theism predicts these things. And if we're thinking about it, the way theism makes these predictions is it's going to flow from the nature of like who God is. So flowing from that value system, like it flows from that value system that like um, God is good and like, God would create good things. God would create a universe that's good and a whole God would create a diverse universe. That's like doing the work here is like, it's coming from the goodness of God and that's going to explain why these things are the way they are. Right. Yeah. Basically. Okay. And then it, the advantage comes over like atheism or naturalism, because there is no like base thing on atheism that would like explain like, Oh, there would be like this good, diverse world or world that's good on a whole or things like that. And that's how theism is going to get this advantage over atheism yeah basically okay do you have i have a bunch of like questions and like objections i want to throw at you um anything else you want to say on like how theism is going to make predictions before we get into some of those 
No, it's fine. You can throw my... Uh, well, if you do throw objections, I can probably clarify more on it anyways. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah definitely. Just... So, one thing that I'm sure, um, like, some atheist listeners uh, may be thinking is, like, well, what about like scientific predictions? Like, isn't that like the go-to, like we have an experiment and they can look under a microscope and be like, oh, look, there we go. There's our thing. Um, so can't like under this model, look under a microscope and just like see God. So like, obviously it's going to be different from scientific predictions. Um, and like, how's that going to matter? Like, how would you like respond to someone that says like, this isn't like a good method of like prediction? Right. So that's going, I mean, it depends on what you mean by prediction. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there is this idea of retrodiction. And I think most scientific theories are actually retrodicting rather than predicting. Um, but even setting that aside, I think, um, so I guess the question is, why can't we just, you know, assume some t type of scientific theory, right? Or some, but it, again, this, this isn't going to really answer the question, because if we, if we go down that route, if we say, oh, well, the scientific theory explains it and we don't need anything else. Well, that doesn't really explain <laughs> the scientific theory itself. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I forgot, I know Swinburne has made this point before. Theism is not trying to replace science, but rather theism is trying to explain why we can do science in the first place. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would say in response to that objection. And also there's, um, there's some really good, I think this is this the book. I think I don't. Okay, so I'm probably okay. I might be wrong in this completely, but um. Oh wait. So <laughs> Andrew Loki himself, I think in the first chapter of this um, on his book on God and Ultimate Origins, have has critiqued um, scientism. Now I don't want to critique scientism fully here but i would reference um that first section to sort of understand a lot of the issues with even again and this is his criticisms apply even if you don't think the clom works because i don't think the clom works not even his version but what i will say is that i think he provides some good criticisms of uh scientism at least in that first section so um i don't think that's gonna work as as an objection to the to the actual uh framework here so what you're going to say, Kyle, then is one, like scientism is false. Like that, that idea yeah. that like you need to have these like, like experimental predictions, like, no, we don't need that. Um, in like the hard scientific like sense. So that's one response. And then the second thing you'd say is kind of like, well, there theism does make predictions. It's just not in that way. Like there's a different way of doing it where like this. Yeah. And laid out. the other thing I would also want to mention here that at least in the realm of epistemology, there are multiple ways that you could realize evidence so it's not like evidence is just limited to like you know scientific evidence but rather you can have multiple multiplicity of evidence right mm -hmm. let me see if i can find my notes on this because there actually is a definition of evidence that i think works and sort of encompasses all of our knowledge so um so there's actually um thomas kelly from the princeton university um makes i think he he wrote a paper on this and let me see if I can get the paper just so I don't forget. So yeah, he, he wrote a paper on the nature of evidence and his definition of evidence is basically that evidence is a function. So a central function of evidence is to make evident that which would not be so in its absence. Well, 
if that's your definition of evidence, you don't, that's not just limited to scientific <laughs> evidence, right? <laughs> so you can have, for example, you can have historical evidence, you can have um, evidence in terms of like when you're trying to solve a crime scene, right? You're not going to do an experiment there. You're going to rely upon, you know, you're going to gather some sort of data and try to predict, you know, try to create a story of what, what happened or something like that. So when we understand, I think when we understand evidence properly, right, in the way that epistemologists talk about it, um, scientism is just wrong. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's super helpful. So you're going to say scientism is wrong. And I think it might be helpful for people, like, when you're saying, like, theism makes predictions, um, predictions like that work and carry a lot of baggage. Um, so, like, what you're really trying to do is, like, show that, like, there is evidence for theism. Um, when we're looking at this, like, um, these things are like, expected on theism, not atheism. There's going to be, like, like big picture, this is evidence for theism. This may not, right, like, not only that, but another thing... It doesn't mean, like, it proves God exists. It just means, like, there's evidence for God. Right, and so the other thing is, when it comes to make phase and making predictions i'm just saying that we can put an antecedent probability that we can put some kind of principles that sort of limit god's actions so then when we look out into the world we can see hey this you know is more expected on theism than its negation right so that's all i'm really saying here i'm not claiming that like this proves god or anything like that so so yeah Mm -hmm. okay yeah that's super helpful um that you're saying like, hey, here's evidence for God. These are predictions that provide evidence. They don't prove God exists. Um, yeah, that's super helpful. So another thing I wondered, Kyle, is like, what kind of implications would this have for like skeptical theism? Like if we're going to say that like theism makes predictions, um, some people that are skeptical theists may like wonder like, like, can you still like be a skeptical theist? And like, if say like maybe you can predict what God would do in like this front, but not with like evil. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Right. So I, I do think that skept- at least extreme skeptical theism is not going to work. Um, so if we're going to say that we can't know anything about why God would allow or why God would create our world, that's just not going to work. Now, when it comes to evil specifically, I think there might be some room here. And let me sort of outline what I mean by this. So what we could say, and this is this is kind of the approach that I myself take, um, so the, the view of skeptical theism that I sort of adopt is sort of more moderate. Mm-hmm. And what it basically says is this, the antecedent probability that God would create a world. So again, I'm using the principle of ultimate goodness here. The antecedent probability that God would create a world that is good in the whole is one. Okay. So that's antecedent. It's antecedent more likely on theism than it's negation that God would do this. And then when we look out into the world we have to observe, let's say, evils, for example. And what what an atheist might say is, oh, well, look at all these evils. This is not good in the whole. This is not, like, defeated. This isn't the defeat condition or this ultimate goodness condition hasn't been fulfilled. And then what the theist can say in response to that is, hmm, well, since theism entails an afterlife, so since theism entails that things would be good in the whole, then it would entail some kind of, you know, afterlife where these evils can be defeated. And so then any indefeasible evil, so any evils that we observe that don't seem to be good on the whole, it's just inscrutable. So you can't actually put any kind of probability to it, right? So mm. 
it's probabilistically inscrutable. So basically any evils that are indefeasible or any evils that seem indefeasible or gratuitous or whatever are probabilistically inscrutable given this, right? Given the antecedent probability judgment that we, you know, the antecedent uh, principles that we laid out earlier. Um, and so therefore um, it's skeptical theism in the sense that we are, what we're saying is that it's inscrutable the, it's the probability is inscrutable that you would see these uh, indefeasible evils or gratuitous evils or whatever, right? And so then the probability just is nullified at that point because of the fact that we haven't observed an afterlife. We haven't we haven't observed um, the creature to be um, good on the whole yet, right? So because we haven't observed that, because we haven't observed um, their... And we also haven't... It works both ways. So we haven't observed their lives be good on the whole, but we also haven't seen a violation of that principle. So we haven't seen God actually violate the ultimate goodness principle. So because of that, then the probabilities can't make a judgment on it. right? So in that sense, it's skeptical theism because is that... Uh, the probability is inscrutable, right? And in order for the probability to work, you have to show that it's actually disconformatory, that it, there's actually like some positive good reason to think that um, that there would be, yeah, that these types of evils are unexpected on theism. But when we have this principle, that's just, that's just not the case, right? It's inscrutable in that sense. So, so yeah, that's that's one way in which actually can be applied here it's just a more kind of it's more limiting it's it's not it's not it's not saying that we can't know anything about why god allows for evil or we can't know anything about why god created our world but rather what it's saying is that the probability so the the probabilities of these inscrutable evils or the probabilities of the the you know this alleged disconfirmatory evidence is actually not disconfirmatory, but rather it's inscrutable. So that's what I would say in response to that. So what you are trying to do then, Kyle, if I understand you right, is when we're looking at skeptical theism, is you're trying to first like look at your defeat condition, um, where we have this idea that you can go back and we did some conversation about this a while yeah. ago, um, where it's where the, it's the idea that all evils are going to be defeated. And this is something that's like entailed from the nature of like yeah. God, a perfect being. So it's something that like if God exists and there's a perfectly good God, all evils are going to be defeated. It's something that's like going to happen. Like it's not like it's going to like it's entailed from God existing. Like this has to happen. Um, and from there, then you kind of look at skeptical theism. Um, and you want to say that like, well, if this defeat conditions entailed that all evils are going to be defeated and someone wants to look at like, say, like a horrendous evil, that's gratuitous. You want to say like, hey, like it's actually inscrutable because like we just don't we can't really know um and say that it's gratuitous because we know that it's entailed that god will defeat all evils and maybe we're just missing something here and there's some larger picture or something going on here where this evil is in fact going to be defeated because we have this entailment from theism is that kind of what you're trying to yes do? yeah so in that sense it is you could this is my approach this is kind of like my version of skeptical theism where mm -hmm. you could say that the probabilities are inscrutable right but again notice how it's not it's not skeptical theism in the sense where I can't know anything. 
right? Yeah, <laughs> that's going to be what, what I would I would push back against that version of skeptical theism. But the, the the view that I hold to a more moderate version, I think, works on on my model. So yeah. So you're I I like this because you're not just saying like and not all forms of skeptical theists do this because I think yeah. I've been reading like the Black Belt Companion to probably the problem of evil. Um, I'm on the last section where it's Mike Gray talking about like answering these like super skeptical challenges and he's like hey a lot of people like say skeptical theists believe stuff um that they don't because they're really focused on like the problem of evil and saying like hey we just don't know if an evil is gratuitous or not and that's all we're saying and you're trying to like almost say not just that where it's like we don't know if an evil is gratuitous like we're not in a position to know but you're also trying to add on to say we know that evil is going to be defeated and because of that um we can if theism is true so notice how on the condition that theism is true it's entailed that evil will be defeated. So if that's the case, then then the probability of their evil being defeated is the same probability as theism, which means that any observed indefeasible evil is going to be inscrutable because we mm. haven't observed what's what their total life is. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, I really like that, and I think it's a better version of skeptical... Sorry, theism yeah. um, in that sense. So yeah, yeah that's great. So... Here's a question for you. Um, this is going back to like epistemic um, probability and like mes- metaphysical like probability. Um, so if I remember you right, it's epistemically necessary that God creates, but it's not metaphysically necessary. Is that right? Um, I would. Yes. And the reason why I say that is because when we say if we say it's metaphysically necessary that God creates, then we have to refer specifically to our world. So the world that we observe is the one that God would create necessarily right because that's necessitarianism right so necessitarianism would say that um that it's our world specifically that is necessary right and so the reason why it's not metaphysical necessity is because of that fact that well all we're saying is that god has to create we're not saying that god had to create our token world right our specific world right it could have been a different world or whatever but but yeah so that's that's why there's that sort of distinction there. Okay. So in your view then, Kyle, can you hear that wind? That's yeah, that's I can. Right <laughs> yeah, I'm on the east coast, so we're going through that whole like yeah. tundra right now. Um, so I was wondering, I'm like, dang, it's pretty, it's it's happening out there right now. Um, so back to, back, anyways, back to the program. Um, so in your view then, going way back before, like God creates, there's no possible world then in your view where god just sits there and just doesn't create because i think traditionally christians have said like yeah it's possible just god never created anything um and you are you saying there's no possible world where god just doesn't create anything um so i would say so obviously i think all christians would agree that the trinity is necessary metaphysically Mm -hmm. necessary yeah um and i would that's what i would say as well but what i would say is that there is there's no possible world in which god doesn't ground something good or doesn't create something beyond himself if that makes sense so we don't know like if there's some other possible world out there that's completely different than ours right then it would seem to be to me to be the case that um that that would be now (laughs) i guess i would say no that there is no possible world in which god doesn't create something right given this diffusion principle and given the uh yeah given the other principles i laid out so mm-hmm. 
So yeah. See, you're you're kind of fine just going into the like a, a Christian tradition here and say yeah, it's just it, it is it is impossible. Like God just couldn't create. Like he already wouldn't create. Yeah. Now, I what I the reason why I say that is because I don't see within God's motivations of why he wouldn't create. Like I just don't see where, like what would be his motivation to not create at all. And I just don't really under, I just don't really see what would be that motivation. So maybe it's just like a limitation on my part. I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong. Definitely. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. I can certainly modify my principles to accommodate that. But um, from what I can see from by my lights, I, I feel like, no, like if, if God exists, it's just the absent probability that God would create as one, right? So that's what I would say. Okay. So, and this is from the diffusion principle that you're kind of like yeah. making this stand here. Like, yeah. how like, can you just re go over that again briefly? Like, how is the diffusion principle making you believe that, or not making you, but leading you to believe um, that like there's no possible world where God doesn't create? So yeah. So the idea is basically that goodness is diffuse diffusive of itself that goodness must always actualize some some state of affairs that is beyond itself mm. right um so that's that's what i would that's what i would say that basically that goodness requires something other than itself as a manifestation of itself um mm. now it's interesting because thomas aquinas actually does hold to this principle but of course what he would say and swinburne makes the same point where or i, I think it was was it Swin oh yeah i think it was swinburne where basically like the trinity is an example where you could have it where the father grounds the son and spirit and so that's kind of the so maybe maybe there is a maybe there is a sense in which like okay the diffusion principle can be fulfilled um even if even if god doesn't create like contingent creatures like us right um but I don't know. I'm still th I'm still thinking through that, but I do think that the diffusion principle kind of epistemically entails with a probability of one that God would create, um, okay. even creatures. Yeah, even even contingent creatures like us, even if it's beyond the Trinity, right? So, so yeah. Okay, that's helpful, Kyle. So it's because God is good. Um, his goodness is like almost. He's going to mean like he's going to create something else. Like he's not just going to sit there by himself. Um, like he's going to create these good things and like something along those lines is kind yeah. of the story that you're bringing forward yeah okay so how can here's here's another question we'd spend a lot of time talking about your value system um and from there like that's going to be like how theism makes its predictions so like some people may wonder like how can you really know that like that's god's desire so going back to like people saying like well it's kind of just psychoanalyzing god knowing exactly like what god desires and wants and things like that like how are you coming to this value system um that's doing a lot of the work here Right. So one of the things is um, the, a lot of the principle, some of the principles are kind of independent theism. So that diffusion principle is independent theism. The principle of plenitude is independent theism. And that's just because of the way that values are, right? So values, um, so you could say that the, the axiology of the value system is the higher order theory. It's our background knowledge by which theism is making its predictions off of. So this idea did I? I I think it's on my okay. end. It's okay, on my yeah, end. I'm I was just wondering. Off for a minute. Um, it's on my end. I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. I can All right. I'm gonna just keep my camera off for a minute. Um, but keep going. It's it's my end. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure. So yeah. I mean, so the idea here, I think, 
and this has to do with my view of epistemic probability, which is um, basically that theism, the way that theism makes its predictions is also based off its background knowledge. And this background knowledge is going to be based on the higher order theory. So a higher order axiological system. And when you combine this with what's called confirmational holism in the philosophy of science, um, then the probability of theism is just going to be the same as the probability of this axiological or this value system. Right. So that's sort of how um, you get to it, if that makes sense. Um, and so like the axiological system is not going to be, I mean, yeah, it's going to be auxiliary in the sense that it's part of our background knowledge, but I mean, both sides have to do it anyway. So I don't really see why the theists can't, can't do that. Otherwise, if you're going to deny, like, you know, if you're a theist, if you're going to deny that God has this value system, then you can't make any predictions. And if you're an atheist, and if you deny these, this value system, then, well, then you can't run arguments from evil. So both sides have to use it. And I think once we understand something like, you know, confirmational holism and background knowledge and how all that stuff works, um, then, then it's just kind of, it's already a part of the system as, as a, as it is. So. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. I'm going to try to turn my camera back on. Uh, hopefully, hopefully everything's all right. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground, Kyle. Is there anything else you want to cover? I, we covered all the like questions I wrote down as we were going. Anything else here before we start to wrap up? Um, I don't think so. Let me, okay. So one of the things that people need to understand when it comes to theism making predictions is this idea of confirmational holism. Okay. Um, people will say, oh, well, aren't you just assuming, you know, an axiology here to like generate predictions from? And I'm saying no, because any scientific theory is going to assume is going to have these kind of what's called axiological or auxiliary hypotheses or you could say background knowledge in the background that kind of constrains the theory mm -hmm. right um so if you want more information on this there is a article on the new world encyclopedia about confirmational holism and how it works but um but yeah that's what i would reference in terms of you know if people think that oh well you're you're assuming, like one example is that, oh, well, you're assuming this value system and that's going to lower your priors or something like that. But it's like, no, because my value system is, is independent of theism. It's just the background knowledge by which theism makes its predictions by. So it's not actually going to lower theism's priors at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I would say in response to that. Okay. Um, Kyle, this has been great. I don't really have anything else to say here. Um yeah, anything else, anything else? I'll give you the floor. Just, yeah. Nope, just, uh, I guess, I, I will be doing a video on this um, next year. I don't know. I don't have the exact date yet because I'm still writing the script. But this is kind of like my, this is my axiological system by which I, how I can show that theism makes predictions. So, so yeah. Yeah. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you. Um yeah, it's been a great conversation, and I appreciate your work, and you're always willing to come on. And Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, how can people, like, follow with you, connect with you, things like that? So, yeah, go to Christian Idealism. You can also follow me on Twitter, Christian Idealism. Um, you can email me at massapologist at gmail.com. 
So if you want to reach out to me there, you can as well. All right. Well, this is it here on Apologetics, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today. Um, if you're new here, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. Uh, and if you value what we do, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. So should hear apologetics. That's that. That's that. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate your time. All right. Have a good one, everyone. God bless. And we'll catch, catch you next time.